Michael Kerwin, you're a British Jesuit. You're living here in Ireland in the Leeson Street community and working with the Loyola Institute of Theology and TCD. In the area of political theology, you've written and spoken a lot. And we're going to look at the whole rise of populism. They're calling it a new fascism. Can you explain that to me? It's a term that's being used and it's language we need to be very careful about because you don't want to be throwing around comparisons uh, lightly, but I do think there is something in the language that's being spoken of, uh, whether it's new fascism, neo-fascism, or whatever it is, that sense that we have been here before, that something is replicating itself that we're all too familiar with, and, and it's this mixture of populism, populist fear, playing on resentment, identification of groups to be scapegoated or blamed, crisis of identity, there's a disillusionment with democracy, and also something I'll talk about, the, the kind of politics as spectacle, there's, there's something about politics as uh, something that's being acted out and has a kind of histrionic aspect to it, uh, and then fascination with strong, charismatic leaders. We have been here, I and mean, one has to look at the phenomena of 100 years ago, look at what happened then, learn what we can from it, recognising their differences as well as similarities. But it seems to me that that's an obvious thing that we should be doing, while also looking at causes beyond that. I'm reminded a little bit of a, there's a book that came out in 2010 by a British scholar called Nicholas Boyle. That was kind of tongue-in-cheek, but it was called 2014, How to Survive the Next Big Crisis. And his thesis, basically, was that in the second decade of every century, we seem to have some big crisis uh, that occurs. Well, it was 1914, obviously, while uh, the uh, eruptions around the Polonic Wars, the, the century before that. You know, something's going to happen, he says, in the next few years. And my money is on 2014. And I think you want to say, well, he got it wrong by a couple of years. 2016 is the marker for most of us with the presidential election in the States and with uh, Brexit. And now 2020 is being defined by corona. And those crises coming together, it's a pandemic, it's also a political and economic crisis and all the rest of it. That's the kind of brew out of which desperate political solutions emerge. And I think that's what we're seeing. That's what we need to be attentive to as best we can. So if we're being attentive to it, part of that attention would be the, the differences as well. And there are differences this time yeah. around. What do you see mm-hmm. them as? Well, one would hope that part of the difference is that we have been there before and we do recognise the patterns and that hopefully that will help us to, to deal with them. I suspect the fact that the world's more globalised than it was a century ago, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing in terms of, of dealing with, with uh, the situation. And we have had the experience over the last 70 years of attempts to build transnational, multinational institutions. Now, those are in crisis at the moment, but there has been an attempt to try and bring ourselves together and, and avoid these kind of crises. So we've had at least the experience of, of that kind of uh, construction. Mm. And so it's not as if we'd be starting from scratch again, but I mean, the fragility of those institutions is very evident. I guess the other thing that, that is um, different for us, and again, whether this is uh, something that makes things more severe for us, but I think uh, the whole rise of social media and the capacities of social media for distorting 
situations and magnifying. I suppose this is the thing that social media magnifies what's there and, and something that could have been localised suddenly finds it's, it's all over the place. So the, the contagious aspect of social media, for good or ill, is, is something that has to be dealt with. I would also say I think in many ways we are dealing with what some people would talk about the kind of postmodern culture or cultural norms around scepticism about truth. Mm. I think we've had this in our academies now for about 30 years where people were very sceptical about the idea of truth and, and rightly uh, dubious about big statements or grand narratives of truth. This crisis of truth... It seems to me, and I don't know what you think about this, but in times gone by, there was truth and there was falsehood. But you could rely on, if somebody was telling lies, that people would say, well, they're telling lies, and they would therefore be unmasked, and there may be a reaction when that was found out. Whereas it seems now that people tell lies, like Donald Trump is a classic example, and people actually kind of know they're being lied to, but they don't care. I think that's one of the aspects of the... um fascism, that people are saying, we like what this man is saying, and it doesn't matter if he's saying something different tomorrow. He's our man. He's, he's somehow, uh, and it's like, I mean, to some extent, on a lesser level, some like Boris Johnson's getting away with the same kind of thing. And it's part, as I say, of, of a kind of cultural thing. That's what our academies have been uh, living with for a long time, the idea that there's no such thing as truth and so on. And, and uh, it's kind of seeped into the, the wider political culture in particular, people saying, yeah, we know he's an actor, we know he's in being insincere, but there's a sincerity about his insincerity, if you like, this is a kind of performance. One of the uh, commentators on this question of new fascism refers us to, I think, Nietzsche, of course, the great philosopher that everybody draws on these things, said one day actors will be the real masters, actors will be the real masters. And I remember them saying that when Ronald Reagan became president. I said, what's yes. this actor doing, pretending to be a president? And uh, it's got to the stage where actually that's what we're watching. These, we want these people to be actors, TV stars or, or you know, reality TV or whatever it is. That blurring uh, is very much part of the kind of postmodern condition. It's to do with the idea that we can create our own realities. And that's what's all that's happening. Trump is creating his own reality. People are being drawn into that and going along with that. It's breathtaking in a way because genuinely I think there was a time in the past when if somebody told a big massive porky lie, a politician Mm -hmm. or Dominic Cummings or whatever, and if they told that lie and then some investigative journalist brought it out and it was a a scandal and they'd be gone. Whereas nowadays Mm -hmm. you are left wondering I can lie with impunity. Donald Trump says he can kill somebody with impunity on Fifth Avenue. But there is a real crisis. You mentioned the word impunity there, and I think that leads into a second set of reflections, which I think are also important. That, As I say, we need to look at the last century in order to look at the phenomenon of, of fascism and to understand that. And that's one kind of investigation, that's one register that we need to be aware of. But I think the second is this... Uh, 500-year history of called political secularization, and this is where political theology comes in, the theological bit of this, that the shift or the transference of sovereignty from medieval kingship to the people or to, to the sovereignty of the people, uh, that has not been anything like as smooth a transition as we like to think it has been. And I think there's all kinds of 
vestiges of divinity and sacred power that have been caught up in that and hadn't gone away. And I think part of what we're dealing with is, especially when democracy is seen to be in crisis, there is a nostalgia for the absolute monarch, the, the, the figure who had all the kind of power. And I think this is what Donald Trump is tapping into. He and his supporters don't want him to be president. They want a monarch. They want an absolute monarch. And this is somebody who is unconstrained by legal or constitutional uh, boundaries. Somebody who can do what he likes. And the terminology for that, you could say, there's a kind of impunity that goes with that. Uh, but there's also an immunity. And the medieval king not only was somebody above the law, that he didn't answer to anybody except God, but he was also seen as being immune in the sense of being free from disease. He had healing powers and therefore he couldn't be touched by the plague and all the rest of it. And even something as relatively trivial as Trump refusing to wear a mask. This is Trump saying, I am immune. This disease won't get me. I am above even the kind of pandemic. And it's tapping into a very powerful image which subconsciously people are relating to. And I think that's one of the things that we had to kind of uh, examine as well. The kind of crisis of democracy and crisis of democratic institutions is causing people to look for alternatives. And when people speak about illiberal democracy, talk about somehow marrying democracy in some sense with the absolute will or the absolute power of, of a leader who has no constraint in him, which is very, very scary. But it goes back quite a long way. And Michael, that's very interesting. Do you think that that need in people for this kind of divine ruler, is that aligned to the rise of secularism and the absence of God in politics, any kind of God? Or is it more a psychological thing where people at a certain infantile or up to pre-adolescent stage want to be told what to do and feel that they're being looked after by a big mommy and this daddy in the sky? I'd imagine it's uh, a lot of those things uh, mixed in together, yeah? um, but there's certainly something around projection with the fascination that we have with strong leaders. And that, as I say, is tied in with the notion of spectacle, the fact that the leader is someone who successfully performs very dramatic actions full of symbolism. I think the latest example of Trump, once again, going to the church and holding up a Bible. In a sense, it doesn't matter what that means. It's Trump asserting his authority, saying, I can go where I like and all the rest of it. And there's a need, I think, in a lot of us for uh, seeing that kind of, of power as something that I would like for myself. I would like that myself to be untrammeled and to be able to do whatever I like to do. So when I see that in a leader, that's something I identify with. That's very interesting. And we see it in a number of leaders, not just... Trump, you've got Kim Jong-un, you've Putin, you've Bolsonaro, you have people in Britain who'd say it's Dominic Cummins as opposed to Boris Johnson, um, yeah. the power behind that throne in a way. Do you think it's because in a democracy also everybody is equal, everybody should and fights to have a vote when they get to a certain age? And that in a way is quite a radical thing, uh, you know, that everybody is equal. It is, and that obviously creates the tensions from people who don't want to admit that. People are threatened by that. It's the idea that my self-worth comes out of being better than somebody else. Uh, that's obviously part of what fuels racism, and it's very striking, very sad that the issues of race and gender are so dominant, uh, even after decades of, of, of progress. 
Mm. And we seem to be back to square one. You know, the, the idea that you know I get my self-worth from being superior to somebody else on grounds of race and gender, that's clearly uh, one of the dynamics that's threatened by equality. You tell a white supremacist that we are all equal, he or she will not be impressed mm. because that goes to the heart of how they feel about themselves. I think it's also another thing where you say yeah, democracy is very exciting, it's very radical. It's, a sense, it's also very boring. And I think what actually happens in terms of uh, you get to vote once every four or five years and that's very, very precious and very, very important. But if there's nothing happening in the meantime, uh, democracy doesn't actually mean very much. And uh, they do what they like and then they come every five years uh, to ask for some kind of affirmation. It's actually a very boring kind of system. Hmm. And part of what I think is interesting in this idea of um, the absolute monarch that I was mentioning earlier on, there's a kind of liturgy that has to go on as well. Hmm. Uh, when I say liturgy, there needs to be some kind of public acknowledgement. So when you go to a religious service, you say amen, so you can respond. And if you look at somebody, once again, like Trump, the need for affirmation, whether that's the crowds at his rallies cheering his name, whether it's his Twitter feed, whether it's um, the ratings, that obsession with approval and of acclamation, uh, that's part of, of the kind of politics we're talking about, the, the, the cheering crowds and the waving and, and the, the physical approval that, that we associate with, with populist politics. That's much more exciting than, than going into a polling booth once every five years and marking across. So I think part of what we're dealing with is the fact that democracy is a not very interesting kind of phenomenon. Uh, and the fact that an awful lot of politics happens outside of democratic processes. Um, so we need something that will involve people. Because again, part of what we're dealing with is the fact that most people feel excluded from politics. They don't trust the politicians. They don't really feel involved or listened to. So there's something there about being recognised. You mentioned earlier on whether it was a kind of infantile need. There is something about our need for attention mm -hmm. that, once again, politics speaks to uh, in politics of this, this popular style. Yeah, he's speaking for me. He's listening to me. Mm. Um, he's listening to my concerns and all the rest. Mm. And of course, it's a magic trick because if you're in a crowd of 5,000 people, how is it that he's listening to you? He might be pointing at you and you can feel as if here's somebody who acknowledges my existence. So it's on that very basic human level, where do I get myself worth from? Where do I get my attention from? And for a religious person, my attention comes from my relationship with God. God gives me my self-worth and my self-value. But if, you, if God isn't part of the picture, where does that come from? So there's a kind of echoing effect, or mirroring effect, that uh, the fact of, well, people are pointing out the narcissism that's at work in somebody like Trump, who draws in the attention of people and the attention-seeking. Well, on some level, that's all of us looking for attention, looking for affirmation. It goes back to the philosopher Hegel, who talks about the desire for recognition. We will fight for recognition, and we're prepared to die for recognition. Uh, if you think of something like uh, wars of independence or nationalist wars or freedom fighting and so on, you look at, at Ireland uh, and its centenary of, of independence. You know, 
people prepared to die for the recognition of being an independent state. That's what people will put their lives down for. And then the lesser level, it's something, it's a basic human need that each of us has is to be acknowledged, to be recognized by somebody else. And somehow the kind of political framework of what we're calling new fascism buys into that. It makes people feel part of something bigger and, and being recognized as part of something bigger. I think that's, again, fascinating when we look back at the election of somebody like a Donald Trump where it was very clear that people felt it really was almost an anti-Hillary vote as well because they, an anti-establishment vote because they have felt for so long that they haven't been recognised even by the political establishment and therefore they were making them pay and making them suffer. So I think that recognition thing is a very important point that people do want to feel that they are somehow acknowledged and represented and just casting a vote once every four years is not necessarily going to cut the mustard if they feel alienated. And we even saw shades of that in Ireland in our own election, which seems a million years ago now. Well, and I suppose in a democratic system, and certainly true in Britain, uh, you, you punish your government. If you don't like them, you, you punish them by voting against them. Then in four years' time, maybe you're forgiven them, you might vote for that party again. Uh, so in a sense, the system kind of stumbles along like that. But what happens when the changes that you are voting for are actually very, very far-reaching uh, and, and, and potentially quite destructive? Yeah. And once again, that's how the kind of fascist process works. It works through democratic means. It works through um, uh, democratic systems and processes. Uh, but uh, with a view to undermining them. And that's, yes. that's the scary thing that we're dealing with at the moment. And I think, in, and in Ireland, I mean, we didn't move to a populist, uh, right? And when I draw that analogy, I just mean in terms of what you were saying about recognition and, and yeah. the government, people felt alienated from yeah. homelessness and uh, work and their retirement and all those issues. They didn't, thankfully, move to that populist side mm. that we saw in, in somewhere like America and in other places. I, I'm intrigued about King Lear and the virus, Michael. You'll have to talk to me about that now before we, before we conclude our conversation. Um, well, it's back to this uh, um, one I'm calling exceptionalism, the idea that people are attracted to the leader who is above the law, who is somehow set apart. And I think that fascism, that, that fascination, <laughs> I've said fascism, fascination, there's obviously a, an etymological link there somewhere. Um, well, I think just, just the fascination people have the the British royal family, for goodness sake. I mean, the, the number of people I hear of watching The Crown, um, there's a fascination with royalty and with monarchy and for what it symbolises. Uh, and I think nowhere do we get that more strongly than in our... Um, cultural interest stroke obsession with something like Shakespeare. I think the drama of Shakespeare charts that kind of transition that I mentioned earlier on between divine right of kings, sovereignty, to new forms of political organisation. And he's writing at that very time when this is convulsing uh, the society, when monarchs are no longer taken for granted as being in place by virtue of God's appointment. So that's there right across the place of monarchs who have a kind of divine aura about them, 
but are also extremely vulnerable. And I think you can pick out lots of tragedies to illustrate that. But King Lear is a very good one. Uh, it's the one that people mention because this is what Shakespeare's meant to have done when he was in lockdown in 1603. There's the plague, and the word is that he managed to write this while he was um, off the streets, the theatres were closed and so on. Um, so what have you done while you've been in lockdown? <laughs> Shakespeare wrote King Lear. Uh, the play is interesting in terms of the massive claims to invulnerability that Lear is making and to watch that disintegrate. Um, uh, and it's a very interesting play for the present crisis because it's about uh, the way an old man is wretchedly treated by his family. Uh, now, I know he's not particularly kind to them, but it's an interesting parable for a time when the, the COVID virus has been hitting the elderly and the argument that we've somehow sacrificed some of our most vulnerable people. And Lear's a lovely play for looking at that vulnerability of, of an old man who's losing it and the problems that go with that. And anybody who's got an elderly relative who can't let go um, could probably relate to that play. I'm not quite in the extremity, but it, it's that um, disintegration of social order comes about because Lear tries to abdicate, he tries to hand over his sovereignty to somebody else. And that causes the trouble because he doesn't do it in a smooth way. He does it in a competitive way, right? Which of you loves me most? So he sets up a competition and rivalry. Uh, and of course, everything then uh, falls apart from then on. Uh, now, he discovers his humanity in the course of that. There's this lovely phrase where he says, um, they told me I was everything, but I am not. I am not ague proof. In other words, I'm, I'm, I'm not proof against the fever. <laughs> so he's almost saying that, you know, actually, the play can get to me just as much as anybody else. Yeah. A moment of recognition. But uh, there's another phrase uh, from one of the other characters. It says, it is the time's plague and madmen lead the blind. Wow. <laughs> there's your the time's plague when madmen lead the blind, naming no names and so on. But there's <laughs> that sense of the social disintegration that spills from the top downwards. Uh, and I think this is, again, one of the aspects we're dealing with. But if you haven't got that confident leadership, as soon as he gives up on that, then it's a kind of free-for-all and, and, and all kinds of horrific things. Take. Now, that's a rather conservative Shakespearean worldview. You know, I think he believed very much in the politics of order and having a monarch and so on. But he saw the problems with it. But, um, you know, that conservative worldview is under um, enormous pressure from new ways of thinking, new ways of organizing uh, our political ideas and so on. But it's interesting that that's picked up in so many of the plays, the well-known plays like Hamlet and Lear and, and Macbeth are all dealing with issues around sovereignty. Um, the fascination these characters have with kingship, uh, the fact that Macbeth is prepared to kill, to kill his own king in order to be king. The fascination that the, the crown has. Uh, so the paper I wrote on this book called Shakespeare and the Crown Virus. Sorry about that. <laughs> Very good. It's, uh, it's, it's exactly that. There's a, a silly comparison. Once again, it's this idea of the king is the exceptional one. There's a kind of divine power, divine aura attaches itself to the king. And these characters uh, really have to get their hands on it. And um, uh, maybe slightly vulgar for a moment, there's a passage in um, Monty Python and the Holy Grail 
where King Arthur rides past and one of the peasants says to another peasant, oh, he must be a king. And he says, why do you say that? Because he's not covered in shit. (laughs) That's almost the definition of the king. The king is the one who's not covered in shit. (laughs) Now, in fact, Shakespeare's monarchs do get shit thrown up. In fact, so it's not quite true. But that sense of somebody who's above normal human existence, above the law, above the laws of nature almost, uh, there's something that all of us, in all of us, is that desire for transcendence, that desire for being, which we know we've lost somehow. Uh, and religious people have a narrative to speak about that. We have a way of speaking about that. Augustine says, our hearts are restless, so they rest in thee, O Lord. Um, so we know that you know we're always going to be restless. And I think that religious background is there. But a lot of people don't recognize it. We don't really understand what it is that's pulling them uh, where's this lack that people feel that's pulling them into these desperate kind of political solutions? You know? And I think until we understand that, I don't think we understand what's going on. The people who say, I know he's a liar, I know he's a fraud, but I'm still voting for him because he somehow answers a need that I have, which possibly people can't even name to themselves. Do you see anywhere where that need can now be named more broadly. I'm thinking of the wonderful interview by the Episcopalian bishop speaking about her reaction to Trump coming in front of her church. And she was uh, Mm -hmm. so clear, so articulate. And she spoke about how we are all addressed by racism and how we all have to stand before God and look into our hearts. And at the end of the interview on CNN, the interviewer said, thank you, Bishop, and thank you for your leadership. Mm. And it struck me, are these going to be the voices, Michael, when you're talking there, that are going to maybe get a chance to be heard in the secular realm now? She was impressive. But I also a very impressive interview from um, a police officer in Houston, Texas. I don't know if you mm-hmm. saw that one. Yes. Uh, he just basically told Trump to shut up. But yes. within four or five minutes, he gave a beautiful account of what it is for us to be a community and to link together. And I'm saying, you know, if you stand for president, you've got my vote. You know, there are people putting it into words what it is that we should be doing. And, and uh, you'd hope for it from church leaders. But you'd also hope for it from anybody with any kind of public role um, to hear from a police officer, putting it very, very well. Um, That was uh, Acevedo, I think his name was, and uh, he was great. I think also there's very powerful witness, as we know, coming from healthcare workers, frontline workers and so on, people putting their lives on the line. And it's becoming cliche in a way that they're they're all getting our clap, uh, our applause and and our... (laughs) recognition once again but I think that may be the way forward that we actually recognise that even as we're going about our daily lives there are people prepared to to risk themselves uh, for our well-being and I think um, that's a secular example in a way but if you think of that um, at one stage they had um, a picture of the the statue in Rio de Janeiro the Christ statue and superimposed on it was a a doctor a doctor's uniform and uh, I think the gospel is coming through in all kinds of, of ways. And uh, I think the leadership that we're getting from those health professionals and, and, and ordinary workers. And I, I'm not too worried if our church leaders aren't actually saying anything. As long as somebody's saying something, 
in a sense, it doesn't matter who's saying it, as long as the right things are being said. And maybe if enough of us later on the social media gets that message out there, then that's fine. This is where the church would be following rather than being the leader. Uh, and I have no problem with that, providing we do follow the plan, we do align ourselves with the best of what's happening at the moment. But we should be calling out the worst, and I don't think we're doing that.